Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Family Values, Biblical Style, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 13, 2008. Since my maternal grandmother Hildred was an identical twin, and my nieces, Rachel and Rebecca, are fraternal twins, my mind gravitated quite easily this week toward the Genesis 25 story about the most famous twins in the Bible, Jacob and Esau. I don't normally expect a case history of infertility, obstetrics, genealogy, wills, and family dysfunction when I read the so-called Holy Bible. Reading this Genesis story, though, feels like walking into a county courthouse and shifting through, sifting through a musty box of birth, marriage, and death certificates, public records of lawsuits born of family pathology, and resentful letters never meant to be read by other people. But these are the people, the places, and the problems through which God worked our human redemption. Both Sarah and her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, suffered from infertility. I don't know the figures for ancient Palestine, but according to the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, about 10% of the reproductive age population in the United States suffers infertility, affecting men and women equally. Multiple births are even more rare. Twins occur in about 1 out of 80 pregnancies and roughly 3% of live births. Triplets, like my son's good friends who live right across the street from us, occur in about 1 of 8,000 pregnancies and about 1.8 per 1,000 live births. And so, statistical improbabilities in biology are also the stuff of our redemption. Whether ancient or modern, infertility is a tragedy for those who experience it. You don't normally expect good things to materialize out of infertility. Infertility, I suspect, feels like the absence of divine activity rather than its presence. But the story for this week reminds us that such a conclusion is not necessarily true. Human loss and powerlessness are likewise components of redemption. And while multiple births bring special blessings, they also pose unique challenges. Can you ever treat identical kids equally? Should you even try? How can such genetically similar people be so different? Statistically speaking, both infertility and multiple births are uncommon. But that's precisely how God acted in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah with the birth of the fraternal twins, Jacob and Esau. The Genesis story about Abraham's extended family encompasses roughly 50 people, almost all of whom are male, because females in that time and place didn't count, literally or figuratively. 
I suspect that if you drew a family radius that reached to your 50 closest relatives, your story too would include the colorful in-laws and outlaws, the strained relationships that we read about in Genesis 25. It's not all pretty, and it's hardly the stuff of a Hallmark greeting card, but it's definitely the story of God's saving activity. Abraham fathered at least eight sons by three women. We know of Ishmael and his mother, the Egyptian slave Hagar, and of Isaac, who was born to Sarah. This week, we read that after Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah, with whom he fathered six more sons. For some unknown reason, the genealogists of the so-called Book of Records or so it's called in Genesis 5.1, names all six of Keturah's sons, but then identifies the offspring of just two of those six sons, Abraham's grandchildren, and then, finally, tells us of how just one of those two grandsons gave birth to three clans, Abraham's great-grandchildren. This is a spotty record that feels patchy, random and incomplete, glaring with significant gaps. Surely there were some daughters who remain lost to history? Nor does the record keeper comment on any of this significance, if it even had any significance. Details about Keturah's sons with Abraham sputter out in a genealogical dead end. We do learn one little dirty detail. Upon his death, we read in Genesis 25, verse 5, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. While he was living, he patronized the sons of his concubines. Notice, not the concubines themselves, but the sons of his concubines, with a few trinkets. After which we read, quote, He sent them away from his son Isaac. End quote. So much for maintaining warm family relations. Abraham apparently disinherited seven of his eight sons and their families and then banished them. It's hard to imagine a better way to perpetuate family animosities. Similarly, we learn precious little about Ishmael, the one son born to Abraham and Hagar. Ishmael, we read, fathered twelve sons, and, I assume, some daughters who remain unmentioned. The chronicler lists each of their names. He adds, then, that Ishmael died, and then the ominous observation that, quote, they lived in hostility toward all their brothers, end quote. Given how Abraham disenfranchised most of his offspring when he disposed of his massive wealth, and how Sarah and Hagar bickered jealously from the beginning, I suppose sibling rivalry is what we might have expected, along with effectively erasing you from the written record of family history. That brings us to the infertile couple Isaac and Rebekah, and the birth of their famous twins Jacob and Esau. 
During Rebecca's pregnancy, we read that the twins jostled with each other within her, like some harbinger of further family feuding. In a reversal of that cultural's conventional wisdom, God announced that the older boy would serve the younger. From birth, the fraternal twins were different. Esau was born rough and ready, a hairy boy who grew up to be a rugged hunter who loved the open country. Jacob, we read, was, quote, a quiet man staying among the tents, end quote. We find him cooking in the kitchen with the women in chapter 25, verse 29. Aggravating these differences, the parents played favorites, Isaac favoring Esau and Rebekah doting upon Jacob. Jacob eventually conned his brother Esau of the family birthright, which under normal Semitic conditions gave the bearer a double share of the family inheritance. Later, Rebekah would deceive her own husband so that she and Jacob could swindle the family blessing. Jacob learned his lessons well, too. For a few chapters later, he too played favorites, loving Rachel more than Leah. And now, baptize this family pathology with a dose of religion. We read in Genesis 26, 3 and 12, God blessed Isaac. Which is to say that God carried out his plans for human redemption through one of the twin boys, but not the other. Jacob, not Esau, became the father of the nation Israel. Through four women, the sisters Rachel and Leah, and their slaves Billah and Zilpah, Jacob fathered twelve sons who became the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. Esau became the titular head of rival Edom. Fratricide would characterize this later family history. There's mystery in an odd sort of encouragement in this Semitic family history that's so central to the story of salvation. We don't know why God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, or one of Keturah's six boys, or Jacob instead of Esau. It's not clear why we learn so tantalizingly little about Keturah's six boys, or Ishmael's twelve sons. No explanation is offered. God's choice appears entirely random and arbitrary. In that all of these undeserving characters are so deeply flawed, so entirely human, God's choice was clearly not based on merit. None of the players in this family story come off well. None appeared to offer better metal for the history of salvation. Far from it. And therein we can take encouragement. These people and their families look, feel, sound, and act just like us. But God worked just as mightily through the statistical improbabilities and practical challenges of infertility, multiple births, and deviant behavior. In His gracious hands, the incidental, the accidental, and the ordinary become the material of redemptive history, both in ancient Israel 
in our own and in our own family stories today. And now for further reflection. Why do you think some Christians seem to suggest that our families today should be perfect or free from problems? Number two, how has God worked in and through your own family brokenness? And number three, consider how the genealogy of Jesus affirms God's solidarity with fallen humanity. On page one of his gospel, Matthew lists 42 men in Jesus' genealogy. And then he lists four women with unusually suspicious pasts. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest when her father-in-law abused her as a prostitute. Rahab was a foreigner and a prostitute who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow, while Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up. But this is the family tree of Jesus, our Lord. For books this week, I review Gene Robinson, In the Eye of the Storm, Swept to the Center by God, New York, Seabury Books, 2008, 176 pages. When the openly gay priest Gene Robinson consented to his election as the ninth Anglican bishop of the Diocese of New Hampshire back in 2003, he chose to become both the lightning rod and the standard bearer of the most controversial issue in Christianity today. That's why he wore a bulletproof vest at the ceremony and why bomb-sniffing dogs cleared the building beforehand. Never again will Gene Robinson be just another bishop or a mere private citizen, despite his complaints about being labeled a single-issue priest. He knows that he will never again be in a small room. He writes, Because of the high level of media attention, followed by the close scrutiny of those who oppose me, I'm never in a trusting, safe environment where I can let my guard down. Someone is always watching and will use anything I say against me." End quote. Whether by Robinson's choice or unfortunate necessity, in this book you learn precious little of the personal from this very public figure. He does mention in passing his roots in a poor, uneducated, and deeply Christian family in rural Kentucky where his parents were tenant farmers his first marriage by which he had two children, his treatment for alcohol dependence, and his 20-year commitment with his current partner, Mark Andrews. But all these are brief mentions. True to his word, Robinson never lets his guard down. If you want to learn more about Gene Robinson the man, you'll do better starting at the Wikipedia article. Perhaps my my expectations before reading this book were misplaced, 
But in my own experience, the power of personal story far surpasses the tedium of theological wrangling. I wanted to learn more about Gene Robinson's personal story. The 23 short chapters in just 175 pages treat a broad panoply of Christian themes, many of which read more like unedited sermons than successive chapters in a book. For example, a chapter on the Good Samaritan is followed by a four-page chapter on why for Christians religion and politics must mix, which in turn is followed by an anecdotal chapter about a trip to Hong Kong. Even when he speaks about gays in the church, the treatment is so short for such complex issues that I found it frustrating. Just what, for example, are the implications, pro and con, of separating the civil rights of marriage by the state and the Christian rights of blessing a marriage by the church? This book and Robinson's many public interviews about it were timed to coincide with and maximize exposure of the Global Anglican Church's Summer 2008 Lambeth Conference that gathers all its bishops every 10 years, and from which Robinson has been excluded as an official participant, but invited in a so-called, quote, diminished status, end quote and his decision to marry his partner, Mark Andrews, in a June 2008 civil union that will then be blessed in his New Hampshire church. That's not a bad thing for a person who's leading an important cause, but this book will attract readers more because of who wrote it than for what he says. In my own reflection on Christian gays, I was more deeply influenced by Mel White's book, Stranger at the Gate, 1994. Carol Curo and Robert Curo, Are There Closets in Heaven? A Catholic Father and a Lesbian Daughter Share Their Story, 2007. And then the documentary film called For the Bible Tells Me So, 2007, about five Christian families whose gay children went public, one of whom is none other than Gene Robinson. Gene Robinson, in the eye of the storm, swept to the center by God. For film this week, I review The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, 2007. Jean-Dominique Bobby had it made, or so he thought. At age 43, he was the editor of Elle magazine, cynical, rich, glamorous, and a stranger to failure. Then he had a massive stroke that left him in a coma for three weeks. When he awoke, he suffered from a rare neurological disorder called locked-in syndrome. He could hear a little, and his brain worked fine, but he was totally paralyzed and could not speak. But he could blink with his left eye. This remarkable film about his incredible story tells how Bobby eventually dictated the book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, 
one letter at a time to his amanuensis. A speech therapist devised a chart with the letters of the alphabet arranged by frequency of use. And as she spoke the letters, Bobby would blink for the letter he wanted. Though locked in the heaving diving bell of his useless body, his imagination could still fly as playfully as a butterfly. For most of the film, viewers have the perspective of Bobby. Awkward camera angles, people only partially in his limited field of vision, or too close, blurry images that fade in and out, wanting to say what was, pre what was precisely on his brain but could not utter. Only 45 minutes into the film do we actually see Balbi himself. Family and critics have complained about inconsistencies between this film, the book he wrote, and his real life, but this is nevertheless a phenomenal film that earned four Academy Award nominations. Bobby died in 1997, just days after the publication of his book. In French, with English subtitles, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And finally this week, we continue our series of sonnets by John Donne with the very familiar sonnet, For Whom the Bell Tolls. No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as this a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 13, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.